Hey everybody, welcome back to the Macro Trading Floor. This is Alf speaking, the founder of the Macro Compass, and with me as always. Andreas Steno, the founder of Steno Research. Happy Easter to all of you. This is a short Easter special of the Macro Trading Floor, and we promise you to be bit more actionable this week and discuss a few trades since we've had the feedback that all of a sudden during this banking crisis we stopped being actionable health <laughs> and started discussing actionable? banks yeah no right. we just discussed banks <laughs> discuss banks well that's good at least we didn't scream that the banking system was falling apart and you should take all your money away and all that stuff and mm. went away with some data-driven thingy that hopefully were useful for people to understand what was going on but okay, people want to trade, we'll give them a trade. Why not? Before we get there, I mean, that's the end of the podcast. You need to listen to us blubber for 25 minutes before you get there, right? I mean, that's the, the toll to pay, unfortunately. Um, let's blubber about macro data uh, because we got this labor market report on Friday. Who the hell schedules a labor market report on Good Friday, by the way, Andres? I mean, still, I, I need to understand this. Um, <laughs> But anyway, okay, that was the day that it was released and hey, it's not negative non-farm payrolls yet. I mean, the days before we got job openings that were lower, we got ADP, labor market data that were lower than expected. So people started extrapolating that this is it. It's time now that non-farm payrolls start printing in, you know, below 100,000, trying to push unemployment rate higher, but they didn't. So what's your take? Well... Um, I mean, f first of all, if you look at the Bloomberg consensus numbers now, uh, for the third quarter, uh, the consensus is a negative quarterly GDP print of roughly half, half a percent in, in real terms, um, meaning that the consensus is probably also negative month-on-month -month prints in non-farm payrolls during the third quarter. I mean, those things go hand in hand, right? Um, so, of course, the market is slowly but surely warming up to... Uh, a negative print in, in, in non-farm. Uh, I thought the print would have been uh, lower than what it was. Um, I actually think that the aggregate of information that we received, very benign development in, in wages from a central bank perspective. We are trending towards, say, 3 to 3.25% on a yearly basis in, in wage growth. Not something you should be overly worried about with a 2% inflation target. And private job growth below 200k for the first time in a while. Um, to me, not not really a banger of a report, uh, to be honest. And the market still repriced aggressively after this, at least yeah. relatively aggressively, meaning that I suppose that the true market consensus, the true whisper underlying this actually already started fearing the negative ramifications for uh, the job market in the month of March. What you should be aware of here, Elf, is that the survey period doesn't cover a lot of what happened post the banking stress. Uh, so meaning the revision could be ugly. Uh, still something I would be on the watch for in a month from now. And um, secondly, well, it you probably don't lay off your staff the day after the SVB event, right? <laughs> I, mean, I, I suppose it's fair to assume a time lag of a certain extent. Uh, so I still think the second quarter... Um, could already still start to show signs of weakness in, in the labor market. Every leading indicator is now telling you to expect that. So I looked a bit under the hood of the labor market report and I found a couple of things interesting. The first is the breadth of labor gains on an industry level is very bad. It's mostly 
industries that are still trying to catch up with the um, reopenings, and I mean leisure and hospitality, for example, that are accounting for most of the hirings on a net basis, and government and healthcare sector. So uh, they don't seem to be the most cyclical industries, let's say, uh, adding jobs, while effectively the yeah, the more uh, cyclical interest rate prone industries, like finally the construction sector is showing some weakness on a job creation basis. So the internals, if you wish, of the labor market uh, report were not particularly strong in the first place. And the other thing that I found interesting was, again, wage growth, because this is, the Fed, this is something the Federal Reserve really cares about. I mean, if you get wage growth trending at about 3.5% annualized, your conviction that inflation isn't going to remain at 5% annualized is higher. Because if wages aren't growing that fast, core inflation, generally speaking, also slows down. Why am I saying this? Because I want to tie this discussion with the Fed. We are now at the 8th of April, and we have had no banking drama further for, from SBB, effectively over the last two to three weeks. At the same time, we are having Fed speakers continuously talking about a slowdown in credit creation, something that they do expect as a base case going forward. It seems like they got scared, or at least they're very cognizant of what banking stress does to nominal growth down the road, and they are getting confirmation, honestly, from a bunch of data. ISM services, new orders, holy crap. I mean, they're trending down aggressively. It was only the manufacturing sector until a few months ago, but now the services sector seems to be slowing down as well aggressively. Wage growth is trending at 3 3.5%. The labor market internals aren't as aggressive as they were three to four months ago. Are we looking, Andreas, at a point where the Fed can more credibly say, look, you know, maybe 25 basis points in May, but we're done. We're going to wait for the effect of past hikes to feed into uh, slower economic growth rather than just pushing the car in front of the wall harder and harder. I think the hiking cycle is over, and I've also said that a few times over the past few weeks. Um, the aggregate of data this week supports the pause, uh, both from, from the labor market, uh, but in particular from forward-looking indicators on both price pressures and economic activity. Because what, ha what happens beneath the hood in the ISM services and the ISM manufacturing service is also uh, that price pressures reported by these companies drop fast also in services. Uh, and if you look at ISM services relative to the sticky components of the consumer basket, then it's fair to assume a price pressure of say three to three and a half percent in six months from now. Um, and this is probably the clearest indication for the Fed that a pause could be warranted. Um, and, and therefore, I don't really see the value of, of doing 25 basis points further in, in May, should they fear that they will reignite the uh, the deposit flight with, with such an interest rate hike. Um, we've got data on um, corporate and, and household lending from the US system um, dropping materially in the last two weeks of March. Um, and that is, I guess, the first indication that the tighter lending standards that follow such a liquidity stress between banks will feed through to the system uh, in a broader setting and uh, allow credit standards to do much of the job that the Fed would have had to do otherwise. Um, so, I, I mean, to a certain extent, this SVP case was actually a blessing in disguise for the Fed, you could argue. 
um, because it allows them to back off quicker than what would have otherwise been the case. Uh, and I, I even think that uh, this, this is probably a contrarian take by now, but I even think that the SVB case, when uh, everything and the dust settles here, increases the chance that it won't turn into a material recession uh, since it stopped the Fed from overdoing things too early. Look, I think honestly, if you're the Fed now, you have a bit more cover than you had a few months ago, right? And the macro cycle develops and people, of course, it sells if you are a fear monger and you're going to say a recession is coming tomorrow and then it doesn't happen, then you'll say it, it happens tomorrow as well and you'll say it day after day. But ultimately, the macro cycle moves more slowly than people think, but it does move. So that was always, in my opinion, going to cause um, a Fed pivot. I'm not calling for a Fed pivot yet, but a pause seems a bit more justified, I would say, as well here. The thing is, what does a pause mean for markets? Because so far, we are seeing markets having this muscle memory, Andreas, basically, that mm. any net easing from the Fed, and if you move from hiking rates to not hiking rates anymore, you're easing on a net basis. You're stopping on the rate of change, you're tightening. So markets interpreted that as easing, and that muscle memory is, if the Fed eases, you sell the dollar, you buy assets that are the most correlated with a proactively easy Fed. And those are precious metals, Bitcoin, Nasdaq, high duration, no cash flows assets that have been buttered down during the hiking cycle, you buy them now because effectively the hiking cycle is over. That's the market reaction we have seen. The market is trading as if QT was stopped, a new round of QE was announced, or anyway, the rate of change of tightening has basically come to a halt. Is that the right way to approach the next one to three months from a macro investing perspective? That's, that's a really good question. I mean, should we get a truckload of liquidity added to markets, then correlations would at least suggest that some of these iteration assets will, will, will do okay, despite weak growth. But I mean, if you look at, at history and how high duration assets uh, with a credit element to them perform through a recession, um, then the answer is no. <laughs> I, I, I have to say that. And, and, and therefore, this is probably the biggest puzzle right now because Clearly, it seems like everyone agrees that, I mean, the Fed hiking cycle is over or thereabout. Um, whether they hike it may or not is still up for grabs, but other than that, it's over. Done. Dusted. Secondly, it's a consensus story that GDP growth will be negative in Q3. Um, and it is essentially a consensus story that the recession will happen before year end, right? Um, Q3, Q4. Yeah. So why on earth are we still stuck in a scenario with positive tailwinds blowing on most equity markets worldwide, I'd say? Uh, why are we stuck with extremely low credit premiums? Why are we stuck with emerging market currencies performing like this was a cyclical rebound in commodities? Um, take, take the example of the Mexican piece or the Brazilian real, they're doing much better than you should expect through such a downturn in global growth. And they're doing much better than you should expect given what commodities have done over the past couple of quarters. Uh, so 
something doesn't really add up here from a macro allocation perspective. Um, we see clear signs of weakness in the bond market. We see clear signs of weakness in the actual economic data. And we see a lot of pockets of extreme strength that you wouldn't typically see at this juncture of the, of the cycle. Meaning that if you really trust that Q3 is the nose dive before we rebound, then you better stay off some of these, first of all, these high beta emerging market FX bets. Uh, you better stay off some of the most sensitive stuff in, in the equity space, and you better stay off credit. End of discussion. Well, you know, the funny thing is, April is the month with one of, one of the strongest seasonals in the equity market. Uh, this year, it might be particularly interesting as well, because the hedge fund industry has deleveraged very aggressively in March. I mean, they've got stopped out. Many friends have actually lost their jobs uh, in the hedge fund industry as well because of the volatility in, in rates, right? Um, so that means that the amount of people that, as we speak, have a lot of balance sheet and risk to take on big positions mm. in macro are not many, to be honest. I mean, most hedge funds had had to deleverage. Volatility was extremely high. So also... CTAs, volatility targeting funds, they probably were a bit sidelined because of the very high bond ball. Now, though, if, Andreas, your thesis is right and macro data keeps coming in weak and the Fed is basically done with the hiking cycle, by definition, rates vol should come in because you don't get immediate cuts either unless you get recessionary data straight away being thrown at you. You have a couple of months where basically not much happens roughly. And if that is the case, because of good seasonals in April and the fact that volatility comes down across the board, you might have this funny thing that the equity market rallies further in April. It yeah. might be the most hated rally on earth yeah. with weaker macro data, with credit um, data showing further contraction. But the thing is, it takes a bit of time for negative credit impulse to show into recessionary data. And it might be you get a window where very myopically markets decide to chase equities on the way up. I wouldn't discard that as a 0% chance, to be honest, as we speak. If you look in the option market, you find some extremely funny global macro action where if, you know, if the consensus is really for a recession in Q3, Calls in Amazon, Tesla, consumer discretionary kind of stuff are trading at like 70th percent percentile expensiveness over the last five years. I mean, people are willing to bid up the upside in equities that are subject to negative earnings growth, are subject, as you said before, to a negative earnings cycle. I mean, those are the new safe havens, as my friend Brent Donnelly would say, which is bullshit because nothing is a new safe haven. Um, it's just a, a long-duration asset with earnings attached to it. And yet you see people very confident in bidding those up. You see people very confident in selling the tails in euro, in sterling, in EM equities. I mean, the implied volatility in some of these EM equity indices is extremely low, like really depressed on a long-term perspective. So what goes to show is markets are, the narrative seems to be that a recession is coming, uh, but market action at, at a global macro perspective doesn't seem fully consistent with it yet. What people are willing to pay up for is recessionary trades where things have blown up. 
gold upside, bonds upside. This is where people are really willing to pay up. But at mm. the same time, they're not willing to pay up for downside vol in equity markets. They're willing to be protected against a banking crisis. They're, they're buying expensive puts on bank stocks, which I think is not particularly a smart idea in the short term. As we discussed many times, we don't think banks are going to blow up of a liquidity crisis, maybe of a credit stress later on. But there is a lot of funny things going on in global macro, and none of them are totally consistent with recessionary pricing at all. No, they're certainly not. But, I mean, it kind of feels reminiscent of the seasonality through the year of 2008, right? Mm -hmm. um, I mean, we, we had the issue with Bear Stearns um, in March, April, more or less at this timing. And then the market actually calmed down. It even spiked again in, in equity terms. Uh, we had a few months of pretty decent numbers from the ISM service and stuff like that before the Bear Stearns turned into sort of a broader credit event by uh, August, September, same year. Um, so I mean, I'm, I'm not trying to, to uh, <laughs> draw parallels between those two situations, but it just seems interesting that the, the sort of timeline seems a bit uh, similar this year, because I think you're absolutely right that um, given the month of stress that we've had in March and April, um, Credit standards will be tightened. It takes another three to four months for this to show up truly. Uh, so we will have, I mean, prints in the area of, say, 48, 49 in some of the key PMIs. Not stuff that would really worry you that this is turning into a very ugly recession. Um, and then, I guess, with pretty decent ample liquidity from a central bank perspective, etc. we could have a decent April. That is also still the base case of my macro regime indicator framework, that the April performance will be decent in both bonds and equities. Yeah. Um, and then May, my, my assumption is right now that May is the timing, but um, let's see. I tweeted a few days ago, selling May and go away. Although maybe I uh, at some point should uh, consider uh, that selling in late April is better this time than selling in May, but we'll see about that. I tend to agree on the fact that the, there are some considerations to be had about a risk parity rally in April. It could it could happen. I don't expect any blow up on the upside, but what I expect is just volatility compression. Not much happening. Uh, cementing expectation of the Fed hiking cycle is over, but no drama happening yet, no credit stress happening yet. Uh, and therefore, just you know, the typical carry trades, volatility selling trades actually taking hold, and a slow grind up maybe in risk assets. That should set the stage if that is that that happens to actually finding some very cheap recessionary trades and recessionary protection later on when people are particularly relaxed about that outcome. Instead, I wanted to chat about uh, reserves and uh, and liquidity because this is something that between June and September might look particularly ugly because of, um, of a confluence of factors, at least in my analysis. But I'll tell you first my narrative, and then I want to hear a feedback from your side. So between June and September, I expect the following at a global liquidity level. China not to be forced to do open market operations and stimulate as aggressively as they did in Q2 or in Q1. Japan, no yield con curve control anymore of any meaningful size. So no big bond purchases to defend yield curve control like they did in Q1. 
the US having to replenish their TGA by a few hundred billions in a few months after the debt ceiling uh, impasse is solved. QT, which will still be running probably in the background in late summer, European TLTRO repayments to the tune of few hundred billions, QT that continues in Europe. So I put all of this together, I look at the four or five largest economies in the world, and I'm looking at the rate of change of reserves, liquidity for banks being pretty negative in the second half of the year, like seriously negative on a rate of change basis. And we know that, of course, you can't judge your market um, tilt based only on this indicator. I mean, I don't like charts of reserves against SMP. I mean, give me a break. Uh, but it is a factor to bear in mind uh, when allocating. And I think in the second half of the year, it looks particularly ugly. And I'm not sure a lot of people are paying attention already to that yet. Now, enough with my blubbering. What's your take? Well, um, I, I tend to agree. The, the trend that liquidity will be added due to a a uh, load of technical factors uh, is running on fumes. Yeah. Um, I mean, it is pretty simple math. Uh, you, you cannot bring the Treasury General account below zero, at least as far as I'm concerned. So uh, they have around 100 billion left or so until they get really close to that uh, lower zero bound. So uh, in any case, I mean, they will get very close to that during the next 30, 40 days. Um, and QT is still running, as you said. It seems as if the appetite to lend more in these emergency lending packages from banks is low, as long as the deposit flight fades, which seems likely. I mean, the deposit flight should fade, given that the outlook for rates is now less hawkish than it was just a few months ago. That is a sequential improvement from yeah. from the perspective of incentivizing um, depositors to move away. Um, so, all in all, we have... 30, 40 days left of benign liquidity trends. Um, every, I mean, every every single study you can make on on these trends, unless there is a major change of scenery on, from central banks, of course, uh, would suggest that by mid-May, the latest trends will start to turn. So I, I, I agree with that. The, the question is whether can you use this as the like perfect timing variable for uh, being long short equities and stuff like that. No, you cannot. What what you can use this is as is a good uh, sense of the direction of travel for for overall liquidity trends. Uh, and if there is a big discrepancy between between liquidity trends and equities, then you should start to pay attention. I guess. Yeah. Okay. So. It's Easter, and we're still doing a yeah. podcast, which I'm not sure whether it's sad, it's something to be happy about, uh, proud about. But I would say that we can cut this one short, not before we have come up with a trade idea. Yeah. Come but on, one thing else. Oh, no, you want to say else. something more? Come on. Yes. Come on. Um, so OPEC Plus didn't care about Easter either. <laughs> and should we spend two, three minutes discussing uh, sure. whether whether we see this as a sign of strength or a sign of weakness. Mm. Uh, and I, I can elaborate a bit before I'll allow you to, to give me feedback on it. Um, I mean, I've looked into 10 years of history of supply cuts um, from, from OPEC Plus, and it is very rare, and I put emphasis on very, very rare, that you see a spike in the oil price in the subsequent two to three months of trading after the announcement effect. Um, the reason is that you always take these 
decisions to try and surprise the market in anticipation of weakness in demand. They've, of course, had feedback uh, from their supply chains that demand is weakening. Uh, so I, I cannot see this as a sign of anything else. Of course, it matters if you, from a geopolitical standpoint, just decided to pull the rock from under the supply on a very weird timing. But the timing is not weird this time. I have to to um, to say that again and again because I, I see the other take all the time. The timing is not weird. The manufacturing activity is slowing in China, yeah. in India, in the U.S. Every fucking manufacturing center on the world is using less energy. Yeah. Okay. My take is actually um, a comparison. Let's say you're trying to uh, sell your house. And then uh, you see no demand, mortgage rates have gone up, and you see demand coming down. And you're going to cut the supply of houses. You're, not, you're deciding not to sell anymore. You know, you're like, no, I'm not going to sell, I'm going to wait. You're literally cutting the supply of housing for sale at the moment. Is that a sign of strength or a sign of weakness? If you're cutting supply at the moment where demand is very strong, then... This is going to result into higher prices, most likely. If you're cutting your supply because nobody's bidding up, then I'm sorry, but it doesn't look particularly like a sign of strength. And I guess this is the comparison that could so uh, sound apt for uh, the OPEC plus cuts. It makes sense because as demand comes down, they want to adapt and go basically in front of the curve of lower demand by cutting some supply as we speak. It makes sense but I'm not sure it's a particular sign of long-term strength. So I do agree uh, on you on that. Now, I still want to talk about trade ideas, or at least I have one, uh, which is for, ah, let's say, the month of April. Let's see if this works. What I want to do is go long Polish stocks, Poland. You're like, what? Okay, so let me try to elaborate. Um, if you think that no drama is going to happen in April, then what you want is assets that have a high-risk premium, a good carry, and you can sit on those and basically enjoy the fact that nothing is happening. So you look for currencies with a high rate of return and domestic rates, and in Poland rates are over 6%, as we speak, and for a while. And you look at places that have exposure to industries that have been hammered down badly over the last few months, because if nothing bad happens, those are where the highest risk premia have been built, right? And recently, what that has been has been, of course, uh, financials, in some cases, energy sector as well has been uh, beaten up pretty bad over the last few months. And Poland happened to have quite a lot of exposure to both high interest rates, which guarantee quite a lot of carry. And Poland is very sensitive to the European uh, cycle. Now, Europe isn't roaring as we speak, but the macro cycle in Europe lags the macro cycle in the US by about six to nine months, right? So in Europe, you still have basically the same backdrop of the US six months ago, a labor market, which still looks pretty tight, a services sector, which looks relatively resilient and no banking stress whatsoever to be seen. So if I want to take some exposure to macro risks, I would rather do it in China or in uh, industries or countries with a relatively high sensitivity to European uh, macro cycle. And I think Poland has also high interest rates which benefits the, the whole picture. So you want to trade long Polish equities. 
the simple expression of this is the EPOL ETF, uh, yeah. measured in US dollars uh, for, for US investors. And I mean, what I like about this trade um, on top of the arguments that you have is that you don't buy into like an overly bought trend here uh, because Poland no. Poland didn't really perform alongside the Chinese reopening either, no. um, which I which I was a bit surprised by. Uh, probably as you as you mentioned, due to the high energy prices still and the uh, interest rate sensitivity of, of the uh, Polish housing market. Yeah. Because I mean, I can guarantee you, you can try and fix your mortgage in Poland. It's impossible. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, everyone has a very very short term duration on uh, uh, on their fixing um, in in the mortgage space. So I mean. Uh, those were some of the factors holding Poland back. The happy-go-lucky version of buying Polish stocks is to be uh, levered long Hungarian forint in FX space. Um, yeah. It's a double-digit carry trade versus the yeah. euro uh, and versus the dollar. Um, it's extremely uh, correlated to energy prices, so it sold off massively due to high energy prices last year. It has actually made a decent comeback. I, I traded this, um, and then uh, <laughs> during the stress around Credit Suisse while I was traveling to Madrid, I simply had to close it because it moved so fast in the other direction. So be careful with with uh, such a position in Hungary because it's the really happy-go-lucky version of <laughs> of being long Poland. Um, it's just a riskier version of the same trade, uh, to, to, to be honest. Um, and let me pitch one thing. Um, or actually two things, because the first thing is a bit tricky to get exposure to as a um, regular um, person. You need, probably need to run a fund to be able to get exposure to it directly, at least. If the Fed is close to pausing and eventually pivoting, you find extreme pockets of very positive real rates that you can lock in in Latin American sovereign bonds. Um, so if you take the example of Brazilian sovereign bonds, um, they have an extreme positive real rate of four, five, six percent, no matter depending on where you look on the curve. Um, and typically, they would tend to track Fed funds moves within a decent time range, plus plus minus a few months of of the same moves in 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 the cycle in the U.S. Uh, and it's not really baked into pricing in, in Brazil that a major cutting cycle will commence um, from from extremely high levels of, of nominal interest rates. So I think it's worthwhile looking into local bonds in, uh, in Latin America. And I'm even tempted to say here short term that it's worthwhile buying them without uh, considering the FX risk. Um, if you have to consider the FX risk, the case is, is less obvious, but uh, since you burn some carry in, in the FX um, hedge. But I mean, in any case, there are pockets of very, very high real rates relative to what we see in the West that you could actually tap into uh, should you think that this is the peak for interest rates globally. Uh, and I think it is very close to being the peak for, for policy rates globally. Uh, which is an interesting case. It's just a bit, bit, a bit tricky to get access to actually buying Brazilian government bonds uh, directly as a retail investor. Um, but if you have the opportunity to do so, please feel free to do so. Otherwise, you can proxy bet on this via FX um, forwards. I think that is the easiest way to obtain this kind of exposure um, without having to have an ISTA or an asset manager or whatever. Um, so those were um, my major points. And then finally, I've said it before, and I will say it again, 
Norwegian Central Bank is not on top of its foreign exchange policy right now due to the lack of incoming uh, taxation in oil and natural gas space. They simply sell too many Norwegian kroners to try and match an inflow of Norwegian kroners from uh, taxation. And that taxation is not arriving at the pace that they expected to, meaning that the central bank is actually creating a negative flow in the Norwegian krona day in and day out. And it continues to weaken versus the euro without any major driver. Even in a week where the oil price spiked like crazy, the Norwegian krona fell. And no one gets why. It is because of a bad FX policy of the Norwegian Central Bank. I remain short the Norwegian krona until I see them cave in. Um, so those were a couple of trades from my side. There you go, guys. So for Easter, you get something about Poland, Hungary, Brazil, and Norway, right? You're happy now? No, I'm just kidding. Um, but, you know, global macro is global macro, which means not always a trade is about the US or, or, or bonds or Bitcoin or S&P or European stocks. Sometimes there might be pockets of value everywhere in the world, which is where me and my buddy Andreas try to look at every week. Andreas. If people decide it's time to sign up for a macro research platform at Easter, where are they supposed to do that? <laughs> I, I, I wouldn't recommend doing that during Easter, but <laughs> in, in any case, uh, you can go to stenoresearch.com. We uh, lay forward our uh, trades and bets on a, on a very timely uh, manner, in a way, very timely manner. And we do it across the globe, across uh, assets, and we try to be as actionable as possible also for retail clients. Right, guys, if you're thinking about signing up to a macro research on Easter again, uh, then you can also try out the macro compass, macro and markets in plain English. Well, a bit of an Italian accent, maybe, but okay, that's fine as well. So it's uh, trade ideas and uh, macro broken down all over the place. And that's what I try to do every week at the macro compass. Sign up if you want to try it out. Andreas said that. Um, I think it's time to. Let people enjoy their Easter dinner and lunch. What do you say? Let's do that. See you again next week. See you next week, guys. Bye.